Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of the Axiom Principle. I'm your host, Dr. G. So, all in the month of June, I had uh, some family stuff come up and I was not able to do my podcast on regular schedule, so I apologize for the late notice because I did have podcast scheduled I was just not able to deliver. Um, so for my avid and regular listeners, I totally apologize. Uh, next time I'll be more careful to plan my time. Um, some life events happened though, so it was kind of unexpected for me. And uh, I had to adjust my schedule accordingly, and the first thing to go was my podcast and my YouTube channel, unfortunately. So I thought what I'd do is bring the subjects I was going to talk about in June and bring them into July and just continue forward because it would it made the most sense. So the first one that I was going to talk about was building a science-based worldview. I had hoped to get a few um, scientists on the phone to discuss this, but most were unavailable because school's out, it's time for vacation, they didn't want to go and do a podcast and not... Uh, be on the beach at the same time. So I was unable to book anyone at this time. I'm going to have to try again and maybe do this subject at a later date. So let's first look at the core of building a science-based worldview and what that kind of means. So to me, when you're talking about worldviews, you're talking about the the effects you will have on the world, what is the difference between right and, r right and wrong, what is uh, morality, how you define it, what is uh, ethical decisions, how, what are ethical decisions per se, um, what you would do to make ethical decisions, uh, all that kind of stuff. Because the biggest complaint and the interesting conversation that we've been having between theists and non-theists is uh, where do morals come from? So one of the big arguments that I've seen, and I thought I saw a rather good conversation happen between Prager and um, wasn't Lawrence Krauss, who was it? Well, um, I just drew a blank, so it was on the Rubin Report, and it was Dennis Prager versus, why is his name slipping my mind? Michael Shermer. And these two had a discussion about morality in particular, and sadly, um, it seemed like Dennis Prager had a very solid argument because he knows that his morality comes from a god and when he got into the details of how he knows this he can't prove it he just believes it so there's there is always that rabbit hole of uh bs that he had to fight against then you saw the michael Shermer arguments of um rationality being the basis of all morality but i don't agree with that either i don't think rationality is the basis of morality because other animals that aren't rational that do not even know of their own existence behave in a moral way according to the survival of their 
their own species. So neither one actually sat with me very well regarding uh, where we develop a moral character or moral view. So what I thought I'd do in this episode is try to outline the basis of morality and and give some very distinct um, operational definitions between that and, say, ethics, for example, because those seem to be confused. Let's start with morality at first. Basically, morality is the system of principles that you held about yourself or maybe a society. Typically, way, typically the way I see morality is the understanding of what is good and what is bad behavior. But that is good and bad behavior in yourself first, and good and bad behavior in reflection to somebody else. But it's typically a one-on-one or a self-centered view. And that morality is almost always centered around um, good and bad behavior for just a small percentage of people, one, maybe two people at tops. Ethics is the macro level, if you will. It is the branch, um, as it's defined in uh, Merriam-Webster, it's the, it's the branch of studies of moral principles. Ethics is applied to a societal or the organizational or a larger group, a code of ethics, if you will. This is what the group has agreed is good and bad behavior, and that is their code of ethics. And it, and it usually spans across many activities. So for the argument for a god that created all of morality, their code of ethics is in the Bible. As disturbing as that is, for anybody that's read it cover to cover, their code of ethics is found in the Bible. And typically what they do is they cherry pick those pieces that most align with the highest moral ground and ignore the rest. And that goes for pretty much any religious organization or religious um, affiliation there is. So I wanted to outline those two specifically because it's important to the argument to understand the difference between morals and ethics. Morals is the intuition the decision what is good and what is bad ethics is what a group agrees is good or bad so your ethics will align with your group for example um the muslim community throughout the world all of them agree that homosexuality is ethically bad it is a moral decision that's that people take and that moral decision is is a bad one therefore their ethical opinion across all of muslims is that homosexuality is is bad same with christians they make the exact same claim uh the difference is that christians don't throw gays off of rooftops where that's where you get into the ethics of punishment for somebody that has morally reprehensible morally bad behavior they believe it's a kindness to throw them off the roof in certain countries, at least. You don't see that in Western civilization. They just ignore it until they have the majority and then 
go shoot up a nightclub or something like that. So those two groups, the ethics and the moral beliefs, are very important to understand because you have to also understand that the, the atheist group, the atheist club, the atheist position technically does not have any ethics. There is no delineation. There is no communication between the groups to actually say that there is an ethical or position to which we derive our ethical decisions from. But I don't think that's actually entirely true. We rely on um, our own biology to make those ethical and moral positions known to us. We just aren't, don't articulate that very well because the understanding of evolution, biology, sociology, and psychology is rather limited, mainly because we're really trying to understand and study ourselves, and that's not the easiest thing to do when we're all so very different. So trying to find that common denulation line of human behavior is, is extremely difficult to do. But that's going to bring me into my next um, position where you would start building a moral center without a god. Now, if you're trying to... Um, educate your children on between what is right and what is wrong as an atheist family what can you reference to to kind of drive some facts and maybe some information behind your rationale for your moral decisions because clearly the god squad can just say they're moral because they have the bible or any other religion can say kind of the same thing with their um belief system but what do you have you don't have much of anything now do you when it comes down to it it's uh there there are some arguments that are kind of well known and i'm going to go over them now uh, but there's some additional information that you might want to look into that will help you frame your moral argument more steadily than god told me it's okay so first let's go through altruism most everybody is familiar with what altruism is and how it applies to their behaviors and what they consider morality. Essentially, it's the assumption that altruistic behaviors are something that are ingrained or innate to the human psyche, that uh, altruism in itself is the center of your morality. It's just the idea that um, through biology, through zoology, if you want to consider one of the fields of science to back this up, it's the idea that uh, selfless concern and well-being of others is the focal point of a social species. That's not necessarily true, though, because there's other theories out there that kind of rub that go against this. And this is what I mean. So there's a really interesting... Um, theory that's out there, I guess you could call it that, or a realm of science, which is called sociobiology. And in sociobiology, it's a study that tries to marry evolutionary principles to social behaviors. Sociologists happen to hate this idea and this theory because sociology 
tries to portray that everything is nurture versus nature, that there is no influence in between, that some things do come from biology, come from biology, but then can be influenced or changed later on in your life. In sociobiology, it is a marrying of the two disciplines where um, natural selection meets social behavior. Um, it's it takes a look at actions of other species and then applies it to our own behaviors to understand why we may behave the way we do. Altruism is a part of that, but it is also kind of weird when it comes to biology because there's nothing really in biology that suggests that altruism should be the default position, unless you're a social species. Um, behavior traits when it comes to any species, and when you look at uh, natural selection in particular, they would more spend time on surviving themselves and reproducing than saving someone else for whatever reason. But if you take the social aspect of our species, which is group mentality, it's easier to find food as a group than it is individually, for example, which is why some animals hunt in packs like, like wolves or uh, certain certain uh, breeds of cheetah, for example, hunt in packs and have a greater success than the individual. Lions do the same thing. It, also, um, herds will move together because safety in numbers. So they try to mask their weakest in the in the middle of the rest of them, or they push them out to the fringe and allow the weakest to die so their strongest can survive. But that social interaction depends on where you are in the food chain. So in the social species, in altruism, if you're a on the lower end of the food chain, say you're a cow, for example, or an emu, a gazelle, something is going to be eaten, you're more likely to run away from the herd to save the herd, or the herd leaves in the opposite direction of their weakest individual and sacrifices that weakest one for the greater good of the herd. An opposite effect is also true for the hunters, the, the lions, the, the wolves, and other pack animals who group together and strategically strike so that everybody gets their fair share, or everybody the strongest get their share, and the lion gets to eat with the lionesses, plural, hunted down and, and took over. So in their society, the hunters, they work together to secure food. The, ga the, the grazers tend to flock together for safety in numbers, but then when one of them gets uh, singled out, the rest of them go the opposite direction. There's no defense of the weaker person. Now you get into our species, which is hunter-gatherer, and you find that we kind of carry both of those traits, uh, depending on the flight or flight, excuse me, the flight or fight responses that our species may have, because we have both. In some species, it was easier just to push the weakest in front of you while you run away. And in some 
funny videos, you'd see that happen where uh, in a scare video, you'll see like uh, Jason come out of the corner and the guy will use her or the guy will use the girlfriend as a shield while he runs away. And later is probably single right after that for being the monumental douchebag that he is. So, in social biology, or sociobiology, uh, it tries to take the altruistic behaviors that we have and marry them with what we see in other social species that behave in what seems to be an altruistic behavior. When you try to marry evolution with other disciplines, especially when it comes to self-study of human species, you find that a lot of things are very similar, and a lot of things can be explained by looking at lesser, uh, lesser species. So as you apply sociobiology to humans, you'll see that there's a lot of nature and nurture in human social behavior that drives our own innate behaviors I guess you could say in the black in the background of everything else that we attend to rationalize. Now to move into a, a deeper, interesting conundrum of that, and it's the I, I want to go over the contributions of sociobiology when it comes to understanding our own psychology and moral education. Now there's a paper published. It was in. Oh, where's the date on this guy? Ah, oh, great, it's not dated. Let me go to the bottom, see if there's a date on this one. Nope. It's got plenty of references. So if you Google search some potential contributions to sociobiology, to moral psychology, and moral education, you'll find this uh, paper. It's under. It's on Academia.edu. I've read through it. It's not entirely too bad for... A free publication um, came from Seoul National University, so that might explain why I don't see any dates on this thing too. But essentially, it tries to uh, outline the things we've learned when you've coupled evolutionary biology with psychology and sociology, and the applications that we have found so far show us that a lot of our moral decisions come from our bio biological gut instincts of reaction. Now, what I mean by that is that uh, going from our base instincts, our driving actions come from our base instincts. Our entire moral compass starts at our biological switch of fight or flight. We can make snap decisions, moral decisions of what is right and wrong, starting from those positions. What sentience does for us in this situation is allows us to rationalize those moral arguments and to understand why those things are right or wrong. The difference that we have between lions, wolves, and other pack-hunting species that work together to secure food is we're forward-thinking. Forward I just can't speak tonight. We forward-think, thus... We have the ability to understand the outcome of our actions. Other species do not have this capability. At least not yet, and at least as far as we know. We do know other species that have sentience, meaning that they understand 
uh, or they have the ability to know self or know that they exist. They have self-reflective abilities. But what they can't do is forward think, at least to the best of our knowledge. Our sentience is a pretty tricky thing when it comes to moral compasses and ethical basis of understanding. In fact, that is where religion has spawned the attempted ownership of our moral fabric. The understanding that we have the ability to forward think, the understanding that we have a moral compass that's driven by our base instincts, would preclude, or conclude, rather, that we would attempt to explain where those morals come from to the limits of our understanding. Now, religion was written in a rather unrational time of ignorance where we barely learned how to write. Where literacy, man, I can't speak, where literacy and comprehension skills were scarce. That smart people may have existed, but they didn't understand how to write their thoughts and commit them to a way that was comprehensible for future generations. So their knowledge and their, their experiences were essentially lost. However, the ones that captured some of the moral understandings were also the, the scholars of the time. So when you see like the golden rule, for example, you'll see it frequently reappear in multiple different cultures because it's a, it's a basis of our morality. The do unto others have you, as you would have done unto you is synonymous through every single culture that we have on this planet. Why is it synonymous between every single culture? The Christians, the Muslims, the singular people around the world would say God gave it to them and every person on this planet was created by God or some but such bullshit. Not every culture has the same religion. Not every culture can claim that they've ever spoken to this God figure that is supposedly the center of our moral code. So how can that even be true when the same cultural attributions of the moral codes cannot be attributed to the same people, or the same deity for that matter? So clearly that cannot be true. So what's left? Our biology. Our sociobiology is the centerpiece of our moral code. It is driven by our base instincts and behaviors. The reason why I would say this is probably the core of our moral view, our moral code, our moral understanding as individuals and as people that are, don't believe in a god is because it is grounded in evolutionary theory. This is another reason why, I think, in my opinion anyways, that the creationists, the uh, fundamentalist Mormons, the fundamentalist Christians, the, the Islam, uh, Islamists, which are basically um, Muslim extremists or fundamentalists, I don't know how else to put it, they, they take the word of, of uh, Muhammad in the Quran to a literal interpretation. These type, of, these type of people hate evolution. Why? Because it explains so much. And it is an alternative which is grounded in science 
which is in direct opposition to their beliefs. This causes a huge problem and fails to address uh, some of their other concerns when it comes to moral decision-making because they, they conclude that out of random specks of nothingness, we suddenly have a moral code. But they discard everything that we know by doing so, which is rather irritating. So there is another paper that you should read. And if you search up the term, let me find it, I lost it again. Let me actually just go to the top of this paper because it's pretty entertaining. The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tail, A Social Institutionalist Approach to Moral Judgment. You'll read In reading through this paper, you'll see it's a philosophical approach to the moral reasoning, suggesting that a causal link has been created between reason and... Uh, reason and outcome. So, for example, um, Kant and Hume, for example, are modern philosophers that would suggest that the foundation of ethics comes from rationality in and itself. The, The fact that we can understand what causes harm and we can rationalize and understand the outcomes of our own actions directly influences our moral code and our moral understanding. I I don't find this to be very intuitive because there are inst- there are things that even children who are unable to reason at the time uh, due to cognitive development basically that can deduce whether things are good or bad, right or wrong without much effort and it seems to be coming as and intuition, almost. But there's another reason why I think this thing, this particular paper should be read by all. It's it's not very long, it's only 21, but it's, or 21 pages, but it's also uh, double-columned. So it's 21 pages times two, double-columned. There's a good section in here, I'm just going to read it to you, so a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, Hat, Collier, and Dice found evidence for such an institutionalist interpretation. They examined the American and Brazilian responses to actions that were offensive, yet harmless, such as eating one's dead pet dog, cleaning cleaning one's toilet with the national flag, or eating a chicken carcass one has just used for masturbation. Yes, this was in a journal article, and that... Alone makes it pretty epic to read, but let's continue. The stories were carefully constructed so that no plausible harm could be found, and most participants directly stated that nobody was hurt by the actions in question. Yet participants still usually said the actions were wrong and universally wrong. So we're talking about eating one's dead pet dog is wrong. But it's not somebody else's pet dog. It's your own. Why would you find that wrong? If you were to go from the moral code of God, it's fine. If you were to look at um, 
some uh, some of the things that come out of the Quran, it's it's definitely not cool because uh, as far as I understand, um, the dog is like the most dirtiest animal of all, or something like that. I don't I don't remember exactly what it said, but pretty much dog is uh, is a no go. But everybody found that eating one's pet dog is just disgusting and morally and universally wrong. Not right and wrong. This is the difference between causing harm and wrong. There is no perceivable outcome to that that would state that somebody is getting hurt. So the path of least harm doesn't make sense. The altruistic belief that we rationalize our positions based on the circumstances they're in doesn't seem plausible when you're talking about there is no harm in this situation, yet it's still considered wrong to do. So how is that a or a causation or even a correlation between the two? It doesn't seem so, but it goes on. They frequently made statements such as, it's just wrong to have sex with a chicken. In an academic paper, just to read that, is gratifying all in its own. Furthermore, their effective reactions to the stories, statements that would rather bother them to witness the action, were better predictors of their moral judgments than were the claims about harmful consequences. Head and Hirsch found the same thing when they interviewed conservatives and liberals about sexual morality issues including homosexuality incest and unusual forms of masturbation for both groups effective reactions were good predictors of judgment whereas perceptions of harmfulness were not hayden harsh also found that participants were often morally dumbfounded that is they would be they would stutter laugh or express surprise in their inability to find supporting reasons, yet they would not change their initial judgments of condemnation. It seems, then, that for an effective charge of events such as incest or and other taboo violations, an institutionalist model may be more plausible than the rationalist model. And I happen to agree with this. When you cannot find any rational reason why you do not, or why you believe something is wrong, how can the rationalist position even be true? It would have to be universally true if it were to be a, a, a plausible theory. Because when you test it repeatedly, you should have the same outcome. But when it was tested in this model, it was clearly not a singular outcome. So the social institutionalist model on moral judgment is uh, something I'd rather... Uh, lean to when it comes to educating children's and moral and, and social actions than the rationalist model. A lot of people in the atheist camp like to consider themselves as rational individuals and rational beings. It makes sense to associate your moral understanding and your moral judgments in a rational sense because philosophically it makes sense you're able to understand the outcomes you want to look at the path of least harm and in most cases that's a good indicator of understanding of what is good and what is bad or what is right and what is wrong and if you're going to go with an ethical standard the path of least harm would be a group decision 
on what is a moral right and moral wrong action. It would not be an individualist position because the individualist situation may be different than the social situation. And to give you an example of that, we can take the subject of murder. Universally, on the ethical standard, um, most religions, most societies say murder is wrong. However, when somebody kills somebody else, in most societies, or maybe half at this point, um, it is morally acceptable to end the life of the one that has ended somebody else's life. Thus, murder as a punishment to murder. Uh, at that point, it wouldn't be murder at, uh, at all, would it? Because it would be a justified killing as an unjustified killing. So, ending one's life is a punishment for murder. That would be a better statement. But it's, at that point, what you're talking about there is rationalizing taking one's life. If murder is wrong in all cases, then it should be wrong in every case. So would you not uh, take one's life in an effort for self-defense? An individualist position of fight or, fight or flight would do one of the two. They'd run away from the object of harm, or they would stay and fight and put down the aggressor or the causer of harm. Both positions seem problematic in my view. You have a position where you're talking about moral conundrums and what is ethically good and ethically bad, and we try to rationalize those positions down. But I think we're overthinking this in our positions. When we're arguing with the theists and the atheists alike, we're taking the position of a rational position. Of course, we also believe that theism is irrational because they have to first prove God as a presupposition to claiming that God gave people morals. That is my ultimate first object, or objective, when somebody claims that God gave people morals. Well, you can't just claim that. Prove God first, please. If you can't prove God, then your claim that morals came from God is also null and void. It is non-existent at that point. But where did you get your morals is usually where the tables will turn. And you say from rationality, from skepticism, from altruism, and from other things. However, I think that is also a wrong set of answers that we should be delivering to people when we discuss moral arguments. We should instead look at base behaviors, something that we all share across every human species, or every human in our species, per se, that we all have in common. We all have these altruistic behaviors and we can marry the herd mentality of um, uh, safety in numbers with the hunter mentality of work as a team to collect and gather food to understand that our morals came from both sets of groups because we are in the middle. We are both hunters and gatherers. We have the ability to be omnivorous and eat from both sets of foods, thus giving us a broader range to eat. But that also gives us additional abilities that are brought up through evolution, because from what I understand, evolution never 
leaves anything behind and you always carry it forward. Well, this would be one thing that always got carried forward was our um, fight and flight response would be flipped between both depending on both situation, gut reaction, and the individual. Not everybody has a fight or flight response. In fact, you can um, change that fight or flight response based on knowledge that you've collected, ironically. And to give an example of that, the one that doesn't know how to fight is more likely to run away than the one that does. The one that does know how to fight may walk away, but they will do it knowing that they could wreck the person that's picking a fight with them. If they're forced into a fight, they don't run away. In fact, they attack back or they meet aggression with aggression. The segment I'll be doing on my YouTube channel coming up um, is on a similar subject to this. I don't want to spoil it, but it will be about this particular fight or flight response and what you can do to put yourself in a better position to handle situations that have aggression. But when it comes to our moral decisions, we got to start at the basics. We know that we are an animal species. We know that evolution happened. We know that we are a product of evolution. So what came with us? Well, morals came with us. Our base moral instincts are the ones that are the foundation of everything else that we come up with when it comes to a moral con decision or a moral conundrum. Every decision, every position that we take when it comes to morality starts with and ends with, well, starts with our biology, ends with our rationality. The fun time behind that is that rational thought is a way that we kind of justify our moral position. When I mentioned before we were talking about the moral conundrum and be able to rationalize the concept of harm and the questioning of causality in the reasoning, well, in a causal or in a causal relationship, you can t you can tell when somebody has reasons why they would would or would not do something based on the rationale or the based on their belief of what is right and what is wrong going back to the the paper i mentioned before um there's another section just before the part i read where it says in making this interpretation however Turrell made a jump from correlation to causation. And what I'm talking about there is they made an interpretation to say that um, people who judged the actions to be moral relations also talked about the harmful consequences. So when somebody crosses your moral compass as a wrong action, the way you justify or the way you figure out that is a harmful reaction or har harmful action is through your rational justification of that position. But that also lends to correlation is not causation. This is a, a failure on many fronts that we should reconsider every single time. Is correlation causation? In this case, I don't believe it is. So, Continuing on, the correlation they found between judgment and supporting belief does not necessarily mean that the belief 
caused the judgment. An institutionalist interpretation is just as plausible. The anti-abortion judgment, a gut feeling that abortion is bad, causes the belief that life begins at conception. Ex post facto rationalization of the gut feeling. So what this means, if we take the case of abortion, as they were talking about right here, where does your moral position stand? And I've I've actually argued with uh, people about this in comment section and, and, and online and Twitter and stuff like that, that you hear the argument, it's just a clump of cells, therefore it's okay to end the life inside the mother's womb because it's just a clump of cells, it's not developed. Others will argue that it's not developed a work, uh, you, you, excuse me, it has not developed a neurological system to feel pain yet, so therefore it doesn't feel anything, it's fine to end the life. You take the opposite position of the pro-choice argument, which is pro-life, and their belief is that life starts at conception. Now, the answer to this is rather simple if you look at embryology and, and biology, and life does indeed start at conception according to embryology. Once the sperm meets egg, it can never be anything other than a human being. So that position is correct in knowing that life starts at conception. However, the argument isn't conclusive based on just that piece of evidence because of the level of harm. The assumption of harm is what people rationalize around making that moral argument or that moral decision. Whether it can feel harm or not is where they start. Those that find murder is bad or death or killing is bad regardless of their position or whatever position they're taking is equally as true in this case because life begins at conception Therefore, they are ending human life, which murder is wrong, and there's their rationalization. Ending one's life. And uh, the ending or the moral judgment starts at when is it okay to kill a human? This rationalization is fine, except for when you step into uh, the evolutionary Darwinian theory and apply it to the socio or this moral judgment conundrum. If you're going to end a life, don't pretend that you're just ending a clump of cells or you're, it doesn't feel anything and it's humane or whatever. Understand that you're ending human life. If you're okay with that, move forward. Um, because it's not illegal to do so. And we've never made any laws to prevent anyone from killing a human that's not fully developed yet. At least, there are some. Like, third trimester, for example, is strictly off-limits. However... If you try to rationalize that position, the rationalization happened after the moral decision was made, not before. The moral decisions in, an, in the institutional model happen before the rationalizations occur. And this also aligns with our psychology, which we're about to dive into now. So with... Evolutionary psychology, we understand that our base moral instincts come first, and there's a stack of uh, rationalization and so on and so forth that build upon our base instincts. But our base is what is the foundation of everything that we are. 
knowing this, our moral decisions start from our bases. If you can, if you're okay at an individual level, ending somebody else's life that is not causing, that is causing someone else harm but not causing you harm, then you can find multiple ways to rationalize that position depending on what the moral situation is. But to pretend that that moral situation started at your rationalization excludes the fact that you were already okay with it to begin with. And all you're doing at that point is trying to explain why you're okay with ending a life, be it self-defense, be it whatever. And I think that gets me into kind of the, uh, I covered the, the path of least harm, but I wanted to go into the irony of claiming that morals came from God and claiming that morality is the ownership of God. The reality of it is, is that um, in a theist perspective, it doesn't matter what religion you're talking about, they have always attempted to own the very essence of what makes us human in some fashion. Morality is not any situation or any strength of the imagination that is any different from what anything else a theist has tried to own. They've tried to own our very existence, the, the foundations of where we came from. And that has been proven false. They have tried to own our moral decisions, and that's what this entire episode was about, that our moral decisions actually came from our very existence as a social species, coupled with the fact that we're both hunters and gatherers, which kind of puts us in the middle of both herd mentality and hunting mentality. Our flight and fight responses are the kind of the bedrock of everything else that happens within our life. Um, your gut reactions can actually be changed depending on the knowledge you learn, which is something unique to our species that no other species tends to have. Primarily because they know exactly where they're at on the food chain is what it seems to be. We can go in and out of the food chain because we've developed a, a method to remove ourselves from the pecking order of, of food. Except for when you go and decide to put yourself in harm's way, of course. But it's no different from anything else they've tried to own. They've tried to own your thoughts. They've tried to own your morals. They've tried to own your ethics. They've tried to own your consciousness. They've tried to own your ability to reason. They've tried to own your humility, your arrogance, your self-worth, everything. The aspects that make us human, religion have tried to own in one aspect or another. So it would make no, um, make no surprise that religion in all its forms, no matter what religion we're talking about, has had own attempt at owning morality telling us that morality came from God. The Ten Commandments example that's given out to us is a, is a prime example. Ironically, about three to four of them are just don't piss off God, and the rest is, oh, by the way, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet your neighbor's things, don't kill people, and uh, don't take my name in vain. In um, 
Islam, it's very similar. They have the similar type of Ten Commandments. It's not quite the same. Um, but they do have those stories in there. And they have more, obviously. Their, their religion is quite unique. The Jewish tradition, you just look through the Old Te- Testament and a few other things, the Talmud, for example, and you'll see kind of the same things. They try to own morality. If you go over to uh, Hindu, you'll see that uh, morality is duality, and they kind of understand the duality of nature and kind of plug that whole thing into it with having multiple gods. Each one represents a bit of the moral conundrum and how one should behave. Then you look over into the Eastern traditions, and it wasn't necessarily gods that put things together, but we would have Confucianism that would um, mer- uh, contend with Buddhism, and both would try to see morality in the sense that human actions not necessarily are instinctual, but something that need to be controlled and behaved, and, and here's our base moral code. Um, ironically, the ones in the East had more of a grasp on where morality came from than any other religious tradition, precisely because they started with do least harm. The do least harm piece coming out of our ability and our understanding to be a social species that survival is based on social grouping and not necessarily uh, lone pack hunters looking for food or what have you. But no religion actually owns any moralities, nor can they claim to own any of the moral moral codes, moral conundrums, when they're faced with the concepts of sociobiology, evolutionary psychology, and evolutionary theory to begin with. Once we understood our origins, where things came from, how we developed, it should be no surprise that our sociological positions and our sociological approaches also stem from the same evolutionary basis prior to our ability to both forward think and self-realize. When we combine all that together, we can see now how we rationalize our morality in an attempt to understand both where it came from and why things are right and what what are wrong. So this episode has been quite entertaining, quite interesting. I, I do actually love the moral argument because it's it's simple for me to understand because I always tend to go into a root cause analysis of anything and I try to dig to the center, to the core of any position whatsoever. I usually start with the definitions to make sure that everybody's on the same terms and then I drive exactly where I think things came from. And I don't start from a superstitious nature. I start from what we know to be absolute fact. One of the borrowings of the axiom principle is to claim something is absolute truth with no evidence, but it is in fact not true. So when people try to tell you that moral compasses and morality comes from God, and there has to be an objective morality, well, that objective morality is very subjective when you start to talk about moral conundrums. Because there would be no, ooh, man, I cannot speak. There would be no moral conundrums if morality was objective. Yet we can act in any particular way and justify our own actions. The, the very act of justification demonstrates that our morality does not come from an objective source. In fact, it is very subjective because we can't rationalize 
objectively. It's rationalization is always intrinsic. It's internal. It's in one's head. When you further dig down to their arguments about an objective moral source, you take any moral conundrum and that pretty much destroys it because no matter what happens, it would, always, it would always be the case that it is wrong. So, for example, when you say taking the life of another human being is wrong, but what if that person's trying to kill you and the only way to stop them is to kill them? Is that, and then two wrongs make a right? Not only were they trying to kill you and failed, but you killed them and succeeded. So your moral action of defending yourself is a right action, but is morally wrong according to your code that killing is wrong. This moral conundrum demonstrates that morality is entirely subjective. Because murdering would always be wrong. You would always try to defend yourself yet not take that person's life, in other words. But if the only way to stop that person is to kill them, then you cannot, by definition, be doing a right action. What do you do then? Take your own life? But that's also wrong. The, the moral conundrum demonstrates for us, any moral conundrum, it doesn't matter what it is, demonstrates to us definitively that the multiple different answers that we have and the different rationale that people come out with, for example, the same moral conundrum where you would kill somebody to defend yourself, but killing is wrong, so you let them live with the killing and allow yourself to die if it meant not taking another life, demonstrates the fight versus flight response. They would rather run than face it. It comes down to the basis, the same basis of all moral understanding. Our own ability to rationalize is what has driven us into this argument between um, morals came from God versus morals came from altruism. And altruism is actually, actually not where we all got our morals from. It's a part of it, but not the complete puzzle, in my view. I invite you to go out and look up those two papers, Some Potential Contributions to Sociobiology, to Moral Psychology, and Moral Education, and then the other paper, which is The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tale, A Social Institutionalist Approach to Moral Judgment. The one was written in U University of Virginia. It was published in 2001, so it's rather old, but still goody. And the other one, I don't know when it was published, but it's on academia.edu, which means it's a free one. And it is published from the Seoul National University, which is a obviously a university in Seoul. It's their national university, as it were. If the United States had a national university, that would be not it. Also, uh, some additional references, biologyreference.com. You can look up there, se-t slash sociobiology. Or just Google search sociobiology, and it's right at the bottom there. Those are the three references I share with you tonight as you continue down your rationalization of your moral conundrums. I thank you for joining me. I'm going to cut this episode a few minutes short um, because I really have nothing else to cover in this particular topic. Just uh, know that this is something you should go take a look at, I think, and make your own decisions upon. 
if an objective truth is to be had in a moral situation, it is to understand that we are an, a product of evolution, and our moral decisions should come from the same source that we are from. Just as the Bible thumpers believe that they were created in the image of God, therefore their moral compass comes from God. Well, there is no reason why we rationally could not take the same stance. We are a product of evolution, therefore our moral compass should come from an evolutionary understanding. In this case, sociobiology is the use of evolutionary principles to make that understanding known when it comes to moral decisions and moral judgments. If we look at lesser species, look at the primates, look at the ones that aren't able to realize self or have forward-thinking capabilities, we can see the moral behaviors in these and understand that we, too, make these moral behaviors. But why do they do that? We don't know. It is a part, it seems, of a biological response based on social species behaviors. And there is a perfect, they're not necessarily perfect, but there's a Darwinian explanation that we could lean on to make these things understood. So I thank you for joining me. Um, I hope this axiom principle was entertaining. Um, in two weeks, I shall bring you the next episode of the axiom principle. Um, that one will be live as this one was recorded and my next episode where did I park that web page or did I close it already <laughs> Whee. there we are our my next episode is going to be on the free speech war and hate speech and the free speech combined. Um, I have a U.S.-based view on this particular position, so I thought I'd share that in particularly because um, in the U.S. response to hate speech, hate speech is covered by free speech laws in the United States. It is protected by our Constitution, which is something other people don't have. Um, I have a couple YouTube videos planned for those that want to listen to my YouTube channel. Um, that one's a little bit more vulgar. Um, it's very not so much intellectual, but I try to keep it at a higher level. And I'm going to be taking a little twist with it and trying to marry solutions to problems rather than just ranting like everybody else does and explaining what the problem is and why it's just stupid or wrong or ironic. Instead, I want to offer solutions. I don't think anyone's really doing that, so I want to be one of the people that does. Again, I thank you for tuning in to this Axiom Principle. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, have a good night.